You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Venom Audio Network. Well, hello and welcome to The Way Home Podcast. This is Dan Darling. And glad that you are joining me today. We've got a great podcast lined up for you, a conversation uh, with a really brilliant author and thinker and scholar on an important issue of our time. But before we get to that, I want to let you know about a brand new book that I have called The Characters of Easter. features the ordinary people who are swept up into history's greatest story. And as now as we're approaching the Easter season, Lenten season kind of helps guide us into that worship. I had a great time writing this book. Really enjoyed it. So I talked about the life of Peter and John and uh, the life of Pilate and the women at the tomb and many other of the characters in the story of Christ's death and resurrection. If you want to find out more about it, you can go to danieldarling.com slash Easter, or you can check it out at your favorite retailer. We have a lot of free downloads uh, available if you want to study with your church or your small group. Well, the guest I have today is Dr. Carl Truman. And uh, Dr. Truman is someone whose work I have read for a long time. He's a Christian theologian and uh, historian. He was a professor of historical theology and church history at Westminster Theological Seminary for many, many years. And now today he uh, is a professor at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. I've read a number of his works. There was a summer a couple of years ago that I actually downloaded from, I think it was iTunes U at the time, a series of lectures he did on church history. And if you can go find that, I highly recommend it. Absolutely fantastic. Kind of walking through the whole of church history. He's a funny, he's irreverent, he's just a great teacher, and I helped me learn quite a bit. Well, today we're going to talk mostly about his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. This is one of the most important books I think written in the last decade, as it helps us make sense of the kind of moment we're in, in the world, in our country. Uh, in terms of the self, self-identification, some of the questions that people have about issues like transgender, identity. So I want to encourage you to listen. We have a wide-ranging conversation on a number of issues. Check out my conversation with Carl Truman. Glad to have on the podcast, Dr. Carl Truman. Thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here, Dan. So I want to get right into the substance of your new book, which I has come highly commended by a lot of friends and uh, is kind of making the rounds, has gotten some really good reviews. It's the, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. And I want to ask you just kind of how you came to write this book. I know you talk in the introduction that you were kind of coerced into writing this by uh, Rod Rear and some others, but maybe maybe walk kind of through that. Sure. Well, in, in background, I'm, a, I'm really a Reformation, early modern guy. 16th, 17th century has been where I've done most of my academic publishing. Uh, but I was at a stage in my career four or five years ago when uh, you know, I began to realize, well, I've said pretty much all I can say in these areas. Anything else I say will barely be footnotes to what I've done already. 
And having the attention span of a squirrel anyway, I was looking for something else to do, something something else that might be of interest. And a couple of things came together to, to make it this particular project. One, uh, Rod Dreher and Justin Taylor approached me about producing a, a short book on the thought of Philip Reef, who is famous for his book, mm-hmm. uh, uh, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, and a, a, a very important thinker, I think, for understanding the modern age. So I, I started to think about that and to tinker with that, started to read Reef. And I became convinced that a more interesting book would be not so much a commentary on Reef or an introduction to Reef as an application of some of Reef's ideas to the world around us. At the same time, uh, America was going through the whole gay marriage, Obergefell versus Hodges, uh, stuff transgenderism had suddenly exploded onto the scene in the uh, in the uh, uh, figure of uh, Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner and you know as, as a Christian and as somebody who at the time was also a pastor I was pastoring while I was a professor at the seminary where I taught uh, I became interested in how I could help Christians think through the issues surrounding those things that, if you like, we could might broadly describe them as the sexual revolution. And so these, these sort of different strands all started to, to come together. And I've also, as a historian, I've always been intrigued by why certain things are considered to be coherent and true at particular points mm. in time. I'm, a, I'm an intellectual historian, and that's a big question for me. And that sentence, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, that's pretty common now and you know, will raise scarcely an eyebrow. When you think about it, two things are pretty significant about that statement. One, uh, a lot of people now find it plausible. In fact, a lot of people find it so plausible that to deny it is regarded as as an act of hate or oppression. And two, for that sentence to be regarded as plausible, society has to have already decided that a whole bunch of other things are plausible too. So the book got it focused from, okay, let's think specifically about that question. And let's go back in history and see how the different things that help to make that statement plausible come to be in our culture today yeah it, it's it's really interesting how you trace kind of the different movements and and philosophers and kind of those who predicted the moment we're in those who created in some ways the moment we're in right so uh you you walk us through and, and it's really a great primer to some of these folks that i think a lot of our people probably haven't read right they haven't read philip reef they haven't read some of these other folks is that part of what you're doing too is you're trying to help the the pastor the leader you're trying to distill some of that stuff for the pastor and leader so he can kind of see see these movements yes i, I wanted to produce a book that would allow uh, thoughtful people today to realize that the shifts and changes that are taking place in society are deep-rooted they have a, a a much broader context than we imagine we tend to think of uh, i think we tend to think of symptoms as causes you know we tend to think of the sexual revolution as causing the sexual revolution what I wanted to get to was the idea of no, the sexual revolution is actually a symptom of, of, of deeper causes. So, yeah, I wanted to help people think through more clearly the, the phenomena we see in our culture today. I also wanted to, as, as part of a broader project, I, I want to write more on this and I want to write at a more popular level on this. 
But I felt the first thing I had to do was produce the book with all the footnotes that I can then point people to. I'm, I'm hoping to write a much shorter version covering similar sort of territory where I can say, you know, don't just take my word for it check the footnotes in my earlier book if you're really interested. Because I'm aware that a lot of pastors, a lot of ordinary people, don't have time to sit and read a 400-page history of the cultural history of the West over the last 300 years. They don't. And yet I do think the material the book contains is relevant to everybody. So it was, if you like, I'm laying the, the complicated foundation that will allow me and hopefully others to, to produce uh, books that are shorter, more digestible, and yet still justifiable and coherent. Yeah. I mean, what are the overarching themes in here? I mean, um, I was really interested in like your your work on Philip Reef and how important he, he has been. I've never read anything by Reef, but I hear people refer to him. So I, I'm curious, I guess my question is when you are trying to tell this history of how we got to this moment, how are you able to, as a historian to kind of find the the mountain peaks, the the few folks that in your mind stand out and brought us here out of the sea of just a lot of philosophers, a lot of ideas? Why is it that folks like Reef and Rousseau and um, some of the poets like Wordsworth and Shelley and Blake and Nitschke, Darwin, obviously, what what is it about them that stood out above everyone else? Yeah, it's a very good question. I remember having lunch with a friend of mine, Gordon Graham in Princeton, who was professor of philosophy at the, at the seminary in Princeton at the time. I was there on my fellowship and I was sort of outlining the ambitions of my project at that point. And he he just shook his head. He said, I have no idea where it even begins. He said, that's, I think his analogy was, it's like an octopus. You know, how do you get hold of all those legs? Yeah. Well, uh, I think, first of all, what I, what I'd say as, as preface to my answer is, it's not a complete history. And I make that very clear at the beginning that this is not designed as an exhaustive account. There's a whole story of the role of technology in the development of the way we think about ourselves that I can only only hint at in this book. There's, there's another book written by somebody more competent than me on the uh, to be written on the role of technology uh, informing this story. So it's what I wanted to do was I wanted to, to grab hold of what I thought were the key ideas, the key ideas that lie behind our modern understanding of the self, and then to identify the key figures or, or, or the people who best articulated and represented those ideas in various stages of development. And the narrative, as I see it, if I sort of put it out in really broad, simple terms, would be the first thing that needs to take place for something like transgenderism to become plausible is I have to prioritize my inner feelings over the outward world. Yeah. The Rousseau and the romantics, they're the guys who sort of zero in on that. Secondly, I need to come to some understanding of human nature as malleable, as, as changeable, as not static. Well, that's, yeah, really, Hegel is a big guy on that, but I, I, I touch on Hegel, but I really use uh, Marx, Nietzsche and Darwin, who all in their different ways help inform our modern intuitions that, you know, human nature is pretty malleable. We, we can change it. Uh, thirdly, transgenderism, the sexual revolution, clearly rest upon the idea that the most important inner feelings I have are those that relate to, to sexual desire. So Freud at that point kicks in. And then, of course, there's that interesting question. So how does all of this stuff become political? 
it's one thing to say that I am my sexual desires. They fundamentally define me. It's another thing to, to get your head around why that becomes a public political issue that everybody has to fall into line with. And that's the new left. It's the appropriation of, of certain Freudian ideas by a generation of Marxists uh, who, who rose to prominence really in the 1930s to 1950s, the, the Frankfurt School. So those were the sort of the major building blocks of, of the story. As I say, it's not a complete story. Technology, you know, for an idea to, to, to grab the popular imagination, it has to be plausible. And the idea that human nature is malleable can, it can only become plausible when there are certain technological things out there. And I can't really address those in the book, but it is that it's that intellectual genealogy of how what you and I think of the world intuitively was first forged by the great thinkers of the last two, three, 400 years. Yeah. And it, it's really something how you move through those things. You actually, I think, rely on in, in, in a great way, the work of folks like Charles Taylor, and and others, and I think Reef too. But like one of the biggest things for me when I'm reading this is just the loss of of what Taylor would call the you know he calls this imminent frame, but like the loss of a sense of the transcendent. Our identity and our worth uh, as humans is no longer tied to anything transcendent, right? So even you know because I've 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 worked a lot in the area of human dignity, and I've written written about human dignity. But there's a sense of human dignity today that is not tied to any religious order or anything transcendent. It's just kind of self-created, right? Yes. That obviously that has massive moral implications for for the world. And and I can create the person that I want to be. But not only that, where it enters the political, as you lay out, is that everyone else has to affirm that. <laughs> that if you don't affirm what I say that I am you know, you're on the wrong side of history or whatever. Yeah, I mean, the big question, this is putting it rather simplistically, but, uh, but I think we might say the big question is, is, is the world just stuff or does it have some significance beyond itself? Uh, you know, are you and I simply the chemicals of which we're made up and the, the, the electrical processes that flick on in our minds or is there something bigger uh, is there some bigger scheme into which we're plugged into that gives us our significance? And I think we might say the difference between the modern age and, say, the Middle, age, the middle Ages you know, comes down to just that. Uh, does nature have a significance beyond nature? By and large today, we don't think that. Even as a lot of Christians, we sort of intuitively struggle with that because the pressures not to think that way are so are so great and then as you as you rightly say i think at that point you know we can be whatever we want to be you know nietzsche for the win at this point there is no human nature with some sort of moral structure to which we have to uh, conform ourselves you can be your greatest work of art you, you are there to reinvent yourself. Every one of us should be Oscar Wilde. Uh, and then, of course, you get into the, the rather odd situation where this, we might say, this radical individual libertarianism, where we could be anything we want to be, ends up tending towards a rather nasty social and corporate authoritarianism, because actually... You know, for you to be whatever you want to be means that I have to acknowledge that in some way. And if I don't acknowledge that, then I'm inhibiting and I'm oppressing you. And that's a crime. That's a crime against society. Uh, and so the, this whole situation becomes 
in some ways, very conflicted and very unpredictable. And we say that all around us today, where we have, you know, on the one hand, an abandonment of traditional mor morality. On the other hand, the advent of a, of a top-down Puritanism, the like of which has never been seen before in, in, in a free country. It's, it's quite remarkable. Yeah, and it's interesting. There's so many strands to pull from there that are fascinating to me. I mean, one of them is you know, you have this sort of competing tribes then, because if every tribe is an interest group demanding to be recognized in their self-created version of themselves, how do you sustain a functioning society, right? I mean, and, and it, it does seem like we're seeing so, this on the right and the left, right? So, I mean, obviously we're focused on the left because of the the kind of uh, social issues and the, the sexual revolution is located mostly there, but you also see a radical, as you said, libertarianism, where you start to see the right adopt some of those same arguments, right? So it's, it's, it's an interesting position, right? Yeah, the, the sort of tribalism we're seeing developing is is fascinating. I mean, it goes down to the the other another issue that everybody wants to belong. You know, it's it's you know, being an individual libertarian is great is great as an idea, but ninety nine point nine percent of us want to actually be recognised, affirmed. We want to belong to a group. The problem is that the the old traditional groups to which we belong, the old stories, the story of nation, the story of church, the story of family, these have all collapsed. And now we have to find new stories that will give us that sense of belonging. And it becomes this sort of rather, uh, certainly at the points of, when these things take place, at the points of transition, I think we're living through a transitional point now. It becomes rather chaotic, if not uh, quite, quite scary. We're doing this interview just a week or two after the the invasion of the Capitol by uh, Donald, a group of Donald mm -hmm. Trump supporters. Uh, that's kind of the thing that one expects to happen in our era. And that's not to say I approve of it at all. I absolutely don't. But it's not unexpected. Mm -hmm. When people feel disenfranchised and are looking for new ways of belonging, they will hit out iconoclastically against what they see as the symbols of the old regime. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting, too, that social media has exacerbated this. So social media gives us a platform by which we can curate a version of ourselves that we most want people to see, right? And, uh, you know, yeah. not just on the sexual identity issues, but just in any way, like you, your curated version of yourselves that you that demand to be respected, right? Yes. And I think, you know, one way you could look at the story I tell in my book is it's the story of the increasing loss of importance of the physical body for who we are. And that has other applications. And of course, this is where the technological side comes in, because as you say, social media, you know, in my day, you know, dating, you'd actually, you know, you'd got to meet and know the girl <laughs> and you've got to take the, the physical risk of speaking to her. maybe you could phone her up and it sort of lowered the risk a little bit we now live in a world where where physical knowing of people is is not as important as as it once was to us it's interesting i did a piece on critical race theory at first mm -hmm. things a uh, great, a great uh, piece uh, by the way Oh, thanks very much. Somebody emailed me yesterday and said, have, have you had any, have you had much hate mail on this? And I said, actually, no, everybody who's emailed me has been positive. I said, 
but go and check Twitter. Yeah. Look out there on Twitter. And it's interesting that, again, Twitter is this nice distance medium. Even email involves some level of personal contact. Uh, Twitter is a real risk-free way of taking a, a, a pop at somebody. And, you know, this loss of importance of, of the physical is is very dangerous at a time when the way we imagine our communities to be is really being transformed. Yeah. I mean, we can curate a version of ourselves that sort of cleans up all the parts of our physical presence that we don't like, right? There's two things I want to pull out of here that I'm just fascinated by. You have a quote where you say, the only moral criterion that can be applied to behavior is whether it conduces to the feeling of well-being in the individual's concerned. Ethics, therefore, becomes a function of feeling. You said that better than I've been a lot of people have been thinking about that. You said it better than we could express that it's not a matter of right and wrong or what scripture says or what some transcendent authority says, or even what the facts might say, regardless of your religious tradition. We see this even like with, you know, whether you're talking about the transgender issues and the and the science behind that that people want to deny, or even like basic facts, you know, that one thing happens in the country, amazing that people can see something and, and claim it didn't happen. Even in the church, I feel like we're seeing this with a lot of Christians, a lot of evangelicals, that how something makes me feel matters more than whether or not thus saith the Lord, right? Even among conservatives, I'm not even talking about heterodox, but, but you see what I'm saying? And that seems like where we are today in terms of we judge our ethics by how it makes us feel. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. And of course, by drawing the church in there, I think you're making an important point that that certainly in, in my book, what I'm not trying to do is say, this is a problem for those out there. We just need to pull up the drawbridge and, and do what we've always done. You're absolutely correct in seeing Christians as complicit in this, Some in some fairly obvious ways. Some Christians, you ask them about uh, uh, homosexuality, for example, you'll get a kind of, well, I, I personally disagree with it, but if it makes somebody unhappy, I'm, I'm uneasy about criticizing it. You'll, you'll get it in that form. You'll get it in the form of uh, worship songs that that really do focus just on feelings and God as the answer to my, my feeling of sadness. But you also get it in more subtle ways. You know, I, I'm a I'm a bookish kind of guy. I teach at a college. I love reading books. Always have done. I love ideas. I go to a fairly cerebral church with a fairly cerebral tradition, the, the sort of the high Presbyterian tradition. You know, now I want to say I go there because I think that is the most faithful way of, of the Bible being presented. But if I'm really honest, I have to have to say that actually part of me likes to go there because that's the kind of guy I am. Right. They 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 touch me in just the ways when I'm gonna be very uncomfortable going to a working class Pentecostal church, not purely on theological grounds, but also on grounds of, you know, it doesn't actually work for me. Well, before we continue our conversation, I want to just encourage you to uh, check out our friends at Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling has generously sponsored this episode of the Way Home Podcast. And one of the reasons I was excited to partner with them is because I believe so much in the value of good biblical counseling. 
In the last few years, I've really noticed the importance of counseling, both as a pastor who has to care for people at times, as a husband, as a father, as a friend. There's just times when all of us need to sit down and talk with someone who is skilled at kind of peeling back through the layers of our lives, both the spiritual and the physical and the places where we need clinical diagnosis and we need a, a, a biblical word from God. And sometimes those are, are kind of marbled in together in complex ways that we can't totally understand that someone outside of us can help us do that. I believe this is a really important thing. A lot of times we're afraid to go to counseling. There's a stigma that I don't want to be known as the kind of person who would need to get help. And really we, sh we shouldn't think that way because all of us uh, are fallen, are broken, have needs that someone else that God uh, gifts in a certain way can help with. What's great about the model of faithful counseling is that it's completely confidential and it's completely online. And so if, if you're like me and the kind of the stigma of getting up and going and talking to someone is, is a little bit too much of getting in your car and going to an office or a church, you can do this from the privacy of your home. You fill out a, an intake process and they match you up with a counselor that's suited to your needs. And if you happen to get a counselor that is just not working for you, you can easily exchange them at no cost. You have access to your counselor through text, through email, and other ways if you have a crisis in between sessions. So I want to encourage you to visit faithfulcounseling.com slash wayhome. That's faithfulcounseling.com slash wayhome, and you will get a 10% discount off your first month's membership, which is, which is a really fantastic deal. So visit faithfulcounseling.com slash wayhome and get a 10% discount off your first membership. I really want to encourage you, uh, if you are listening, feel depressed, you have anxiety, or maybe you have some thorny relational issues in your family or at work or other places, to go seek some help with our friends at faithfulcounseling.com slash wayhome. Something I've been thinking about, Carl, uh, reading through your book and as you're interacting with Taylor and Reef and these guys, you know, this, this idea, I think, it, was it Reef that had the first, second, and third worlds? The loss of this kind of transcendent you know, appealing to to the transcendent, which allows us to kind of individualistic self-expression and allows us to create ourselves. Christians in the last couple decades have rightly in some ways kind of distinguished gospel Christianity from civil religion. And, and I think an important way when it talks about saving faith that, you know, being an American, being part of this civil religion in God, we trust, you know, type of framing won't get you to heaven, which, which we, we would agree with. At the same time, I do wonder if our attacking of civil religion as bad, you know, people, some people have gone so far to say, you know, away with civil religion completely. Let's just get back to Christianity. Attacking civil religion, I wonder, has that, you know, helped advance the idea that there's nothing transcendent and creates an environment where we have what we have today? Like, I guess what I'm trying to say, do we need some civil religion in society, even if as a convictional Protestant, I don't think it will get you to heaven. Yeah, it's a very good point. And it's one, actually, we were talking before we started about John Wilsey, uh, teaches at Southern Baptist Seminary. John Wilsey 
changed my mind on this point in that I'd always been one of those, you know, civil religion, it's just idolatry, that, that kind of stuff. And I want to say that uh, I would affirm everything you've said in terms of a theological critique, civil religion, it's not true Christianity. But on the other hand, there were a lot of what I would describe as social goods that were anchored in civil religion, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, uh, concern for the poor. Uh, there are all kinds of things, respect for your neighbor. There are all kinds of things that actually, when you think about it, we anchored them in a kind of uh, woolly, vague, theologically vague, but, but very real sort of civil religion. As we're seeing civil religion passing from the scene, we're seeing many of those things either being dropped completely or coming under huge pressure. And the question then presses in on my mind, you know, was civil religion a totally bad thing if it helped protect the innocent, if it gave a space for really orthodox religion to function and operate? So I'd have to say that, you know, John, I remember John Wilsey saying to me, he said, I do not mourn the, I, I do not celebrate the death of civil religion. And I'm thinking, that's interesting. That's an interesting way of thinking. I changed my mind on that too. And I, I'm going to quote your book here in the, in the chapter, Reimagining Our Culture. You say, Reef's central point here is that the abandonment of a sacred order leaves cultures without any foundation. The culture with no sacred order therefore has the task for Reef, the impossible task of justifying itself only by reference to itself. Morality will thus end, tend toward a matter of simple consequentialist pragmatism with the notion of what are and are not desirable outcomes being shaped by the distinct cultural pathologies of the day. And I think that's that's really where we are. Uh, Wilsey's changed my mind on that. So has Mark Tooley at the uh, Institute for Religion and Democracy. And Tooley's kind of been a voice in the wilderness against all of us Baptists saying, ah, civil religion, just we need the gospel. And he's been saying, no, 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 no. I, I believe you on the theology, but with, if we if we remove this, uh, there's nothing that ties societies together. And, you know, you, you even think presidents or people in positions of power who even had a, you even think of someone like FDR who quoted scripture a lot. There was still a sense, not saying he was a faithful Christian or anything like that, but there was a sense that he was, he had a fear of God in some ways. I'm the president. We have to fear God. And he kind of led the country to do that. That kind of binds society together. Otherwise, now you have this kind of cultural anarchy, right? Yes, and, and this is where Reef is an interesting character because he's sort of you know, Reef, as far as I understand it, though he had a he was Jewish, was a secular Jew, and yet he clearly thinks God is important. You know, that's that's the interesting thing about Reef that God has gone, and I think it's Julian Barnes that says, you know, God has gone, but boy, do I miss him. Uh, and I think Reef would add to that: not only do we miss him, we we actually going to find out that we need him. So I think you're, you're correct that the, the, the loss of the, if you like, the sense of God or that found, you know, the founders very vague in, in their references to God, but, but at least he's there and he provides a kind of stability. The question is, you know, if you get rid of God, how did you justify morality? And I think this is, it's not how everyone reads it, but I think that the, the bit in Dostoevsky where he says, uh, you know, if God is gone, everything's permissible. I think what he's pointing to there is, you know, if, if there is no God, then we can actually find ways to justify anything we wish. And I, I think that's the state we're in, we're in now. And, and, uh, and it means public discourse, of course, is profoundly disconnected because, if you and I were on opposite sides of the abortion debate, we wouldn't even be able to agree on, on the framework within which to have that debate. 
let alone get down to the nitty gritty of uh, of the actual issue. Same goes for uh, gay rights. Same goes for transgender stuff. Yeah. So let's pivot from that. And I know that the way that you feel and one of the ways that things that you rightly encourage the church to do is say, hey, let's lament where we are, but let's not essentially whine about it. This is the this is the moment in which God has called us. God is not wringing his hands in heaven like we might be. So with that framing, what are some recommendations? Like, how do you counsel the church to be faithful in this moment um, in terms of our witness? Well, I think the first thing to do, the church's first responsibility, I think, is to the church. Uh, the, the transmission, if you like, of, of the faith from generation to generation. That's the first task of the church on this front. And I think in, uh, and that means we need to think very carefully about how we train and raise the next generation. Um, I've, you know, when I moved from the seminary to Grove, I went back to teaching undergraduates. Grove is a Christian liberal arts college. I'm now exposed every day to young Christian students from a very different generation and indeed a very different nation to the one that I grew up in. And I'm, I'm impressed by the love that many of them have for Jesus, the love that many of them have for the Bible. What I note is that, uh, and this is an odd way to put it, and, and I'll have to explain what I'm saying before readers, you know, please don't switch off the podcast at this point. Uh-huh. What I've noticed is that for many of them, the Bible is not enough. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean they don't think the Bible is a sufficient guide to faith and life. I think that it is helpful to them to have arguments that help them to make sense of what the Bible says. So, for example, the prohibition on homosexuality. Yeah, on the one hand, many of them will say, yeah, the Bible says it's wrong, therefore it's wrong. But does the Bible say it's wrong because God just doesn't want people to be happy? And I, and I think that kind of question requires a more holistic framework for addressing it. And you want to say, well, no, actually, let's think about what happiness is. Let's think about what flourishing is. Let's think about what bodies are designed for. Let's think about what families are really intended for. So I think the church needs to, uh, to make sure that it's teaching its people well, uh, not simply, if you like, shouting Bible verses louder and louder at congregations, but teaching them to think biblically and teaching them how thinking biblically actually makes sense and connects to reality. And in the book, I talk about natural law, theology of the body. There are various things that, that one can look to for, for that. Secondly, I think the church needs to understand that the problems we face at the moment are very deep-seated. Uh, they're not going to be solved by electing the right president uh, they're not going to be solved by getting a Supreme Court appointment. Uh, it's not going to be solved by getting the right congressional makeup. All of those things can be good, but none of them are going to solve at the drop of the hat the deep cultural situation that we face. And I think that should sober us. And I think it should make us realize that we need to, to think about the long-term divine plan at this point. We need to realize that uh, these things that we often spend most of our lives getting so worked up about, the Bible actually tells us these things are passing away. These things are passing away. That's not to say that we don't care for the world because we're just focused on heaven, but to say 
let's make sure that our teaching keeps things in proportion. I think the church also needs to realize that though uh, I pray that that true persecution will not generally come to the United States, uh, the church is going to be far more marginal and it's going to be uh, less reputable to identify as a Christian in the coming decades. And to accept that, I think we need to realize that. We We need to realize that the church has been through this situation before. Second century, it was despised, misunderstood, minority sect that was considered to be uh, politically um, seditious and uh, ethically immoral. The church has been in a similar situation before, and it came through that by being the church, by focusing on preaching, focusing on being a community, focusing on loving each other, focusing on showing love to those outside. So I think uh, perhaps a, I would say a reorientation, but a re-emphasizing of the community, relational nature of the church is going to be very important uh, in, in the coming years. I, yeah, I agree with that. And uh, that, that's a great word. One thing I'm curious too is, as, I, as I'm hearing you talk and I'm reading your book, the less there is a sense of the transcendent in the broader culture, it would seem to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the church needs to be countercultural in pointing to the transcendent, that there is another world. There is something beyond all of this. And I, I do wonder sometimes that if we shift too much into pragmatism, you know, reaching people where they are, which I think we do need to reach people where I think Paul in Romans, you know, talks about being as creative as you can be to reach the people with the gospel. But if we're too pragmatic, you know, there was a, there was a trend in the nineties, you know, with the megachurches, let's take all the symbols of Christianity down because it's offensive. I wonder if we actually need to go the other way and arrest people with a sense of the transcendent when they come in on Sundays, you know, to hit those places that Charles Taylor talks about those thin places where people do actually hunger and long for something more. They hunger for the transcendent, but they just don't know where to find it. Do you, what do you think about that? I, I agree. Uh, uh, I, my mind is, as you were speaking, my mind was going to an article written by Rod Dreher maybe five or six years ago, Keep Christianity Weird mm. was the title, which is easy for an Eastern Orthodox yeah. guy to do, of course, because you know the last thing the Eastern Orthodox are interested in, really, I mean, and I admire them for it, they're, they're not into accommodating to drag people. They just carry on regardless. But uh, you know, joking aside, uh, I think there's something to that. If people come to church and all they're seeing in church is what they could get over a coffee in Starbucks during the week, uh, that's no good. When you look at Paul when he's preaching, uh, and Paul talks about urging and persuading, I used to say to the students in seminary, if the congregation don't know from the moment you open your mouth in your sermon on Sunday that what you're about to say is the most important thing they're going to hear all week, you failed. You failed. You get them for one hour. You've got to sell them and all the other rubbish they're going to hear fades in comparison to what you're doing. So I think the church really does need to think about how do we exalt God in our worship? And it's why I I see at at Grove, again, interesting phenomenon at Grove is a lot of students come from uh, Bible churches and they go to the Anglican church in town. The Anglican priest, good friend of mine, Ethan Magnus, wonderful fellow. But the Anglican, when I ask the students, why do you go there? They'll say, the liturgy. The liturgy is historic. It takes history seriously. There's, there's no trivia in it. It's, it's, 
It's beautiful words expressing beautiful ideas. Now, obviously, one can get, you know, to use the old sort of language, one can get carnally wrapped up in the outward trappings. But beauty is important. You know, we, we spend our time in making sure that the things that we count as important are beautiful. You know, when I was dating my wife, or when we go out for dinner anniversary, I don't wear a wife beater and shorts. I actually don't wear a wife beater ever and rarely wear shorts, but we go out and I go, I put a jacket and tie on. When I teach, I teach in a jacket and tie. It's not because it's compulsory at Grove, it's because I want the students to know, hey, I'm, I'm taking what I'm doing here and now seriously enough to dress up for it. I think the whole ethos of the church needs to be pervaded by seriousness. What that looks like in any given circumstance may differ. There's an awful lot of culture involved in conceptions of, of beauty and conceptions of seriousness, but it must reflect beauty and seriousness in some way. Mm, yeah, I, I really like that. And just giving a sense of of the transcendent. Uh, and I think, you know, when you read even our church is about to go through Romans, essentially that's what Paul's doing in Romans one, where he's obviously diagnosing how the world has uh, gone mad, but he's saying it all happens because we've rejected a God in heaven that uh, has made us for his purposes. So I think that's so fascinating. Well, this is a really good book. I really appreciate your voice and the work that you're doing, Dr. Carl Truman, and we'll have links to the rise and triumph of the modern self here in the show notes, but thank you so much. And I encourage folks to check out your columns at uh, first things and check out Grove city college. If you want to go and study with uh, Carl Truman. So thanks so much. It's been a pleasure to be on that. Thank you for listening to this edition of the way home podcast with daniel darling for more information you can visit danieldarling.com if you do like this podcast we encourage you to subscribe on itunes or your favorite podcast catcher we also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast you can follow me at at dan darling on twitter or go to my facebook page facebook.com slash daniel m darling I also want to encourage you again to check out my latest book, Away With Words, and you can visit awaywithwordsbook.com. Thank you for listening again to The Way Home Podcast. This is a production of the National Religious Broadcasters. Church.